Hello. Um, today, Angela and I are going to be exploring Medusa, the myth, um, and looking at her art and how she was been depicted since about uh, the eighth century before the Common Era, dating back to to Hesiod. I think that's some of the earliest references to Medusa. Um, she, of course, was a Gorgon and uh, deeply related to the earlier Neolithic snake goddess. So we are going to be bringing this all into the here and now and talking about what we can learn from the myth of Medusa. So thanks for joining us. Uh, this episode does come with a warning that the story of Medusa contains details of sexual violence, violent death, um, and other generally distressing topics. So if you are not feeling safe enough to kind of dive into these areas, um, it's probably not the best episode for you. And if you are experiencing any psychological or other distress um, from your own experiences of sexual violence, we do encourage you to seek the appropriate help. Angela, this is such a treat to talk about Medusa. Um, it is a heavy story, and I think there is a lot of reclaiming that can be done. And also that after spending the last several weeks reading and listening to how Medusa has been depicted throughout history, I believe we have some like original thoughts to kind of contribute to the discussion because Medusa remains a really popular figure. I even watched this, I forgot to tell you this earlier, I watched this B movie that was made in like 2020 mm -hmm. about Medusa, this British B movie, um, which is available on Amazon Prime. So if you like B movies, um, you might want to watch this movie. It's what is it? Is it modern? Does it take place in modern times? Oh yeah, it's completely modern. I won't give away the details. <laughs> Want to watch it? So curious. Okay. So we should probably begin as we always do. I'll light the candle. I have this complicated candle set up. I actually made a little Medusa. Oh, I love her. She's so cute. Wait, so is this? clay or are they different colored clays they're different colored clays she's got a lot of coatings and things on her i love it it's so pretty um i'll put her there and then of course we are wearing our matching medusa medallions yes. that are based on ancient coins which we'll probably talk a lot about how medusa is um a symbol of protection, and that's why the ancients made coins and wore talismans of Medusa and so on. So we are in the spirit being protected by Medusa today. Like the candle. Go. So let's cleanse the space.
And then let's cast that protective energy around us for our time together today. And then our invocation of Medusa is a beautiful poem that I'm going to read. So this poem comes from the anthology Revisioning Medusa, Revisioning Medusa from Monster to Divine Wisdom, which is a girl god anthology that you can find and get on your Kindle. So here's the poem. Medusa, offspring of earth and ocean, nurtured by the wellsprings of life. Serpent tendrils crown you, whispering wisdom and white noise to shield you from the taunts of those maddened by your power. Fickened Gaia and Oceanus course through your veins, and the curse set upon you is a circlet of enlightenment. You speak the oldest truths and foretell the futures of men who have no stomach to hear them. For this you are scorned, for this you shall be exalted. And so we begin our explorations of Medusa. So we have a slideshow. So if you're watching this instead of listening to this, we have lots of Medusa art to share with you as we walk through our discussion. Um, Angela, I know we've been exploring Medusa for a couple of months now, prepping for this. What are your, like, where do you, where are you landing at right now with the big points from this story? The thing that's most resonated with me since we started having these conversations was this idea that Medusa is such a, an effective way to vilify both notions of what we conventionally think as ugly, while also vilifying beauty and casting suspicion around something that is beautiful or attractive. Uh, and this is just something that I've been turning over in my mind for the last few weeks. What about you? Oh, that's so good. For me, where I land is just how complicated it is even today for a woman to speak truth, like how there is a default setting that a lot of us, I think, have, and we don't even know we have it, that we don't expect to be heard when we open our mouths, that we spend a lot of energy in not saying things or in like prepping ourselves to say things when we have important things to say. And I think that's like a legacy of the Medusa story, which is not disconnected from where you're at. You know, the idea of like, what is monstrous, what is beautiful, both are to be reviled and feared um, and connected to the feminine principle. Because we've been reading Cassandra Speaks by Elizabeth Lesser uh, and it's one of our book picks for this month. And, you know, the, her whole premise is that women often are just not believed, whether we're speaking about sexual violence or, you know, other abuse or anything that women, maybe not all women, but a lot of women kind of have this default setting buried deep within us, whatever we say is likely not to be believed or is unimportant, or mm -hmm. we need to over explain ourselves and apologize 
and because it's likely we could be punished we could have an athenian like athena the goddess who's so important in this story like athena will come down on us or uh, perseus will slay us so perseus was medusa's murderer and i think for me at least like i've been exploring that load like what if i operated in the world with the expectation that what I said was valid and true and important and deserved to be believed. Yeah. So we've been talking a lot about that. Like, what is the takeaway message? You know, what is kind of like the two word thing that um, everyone who watches this can kind of go and try to change in their lives. And we, we've been talking a lot about the idea of like, believe her when a woman speaks, believe her. And like you had some really interesting thoughts about that. I don't know. You want to lead in with those thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking. This is a sticky wicket. I just feel like believe is such an all encompassing word and it doesn't really I'm not sure that it's actually doing the service that we want it to do. The the idea is hopefully that, you know, you're actually integrating this person's story and you're listening and there's this there's this assumption i guess that comes with it of the default will be that this person won't be lying to you so you have an openness to it and a compassion around it but i also don't believe that we should just believe everything that people say to us all the time just because of a particular gender or particular context what I, do, what I do believe though, sorry, has my sound changed randomly? It has changed. Okay, like for better or for I, I It's fine. Okay. What I do believe though is that this term could use a little bit of nuance. It's not necessarily about believing everything of people. It's about creating the space for compassion and a certain humanity to exist mm -hmm. for whoever, for women who are speaking. Uh, I'll give you a useful example. Like one of the things that came up in me too was this idea that you know that you're in a minority and a disadvantaged minority when you are like, when you are visual, ooh, thank you very much. I just received a package <laughs> when you are in a public space and you are visible and for some reason whether or not you're good or bad people think that you're the representative for an entire thing right mm -hmm. like you're the representative of all women or of all asians so you really need to put a good foot forward or you know you could just ruin it for everybody and everybody's sort of judging you by that standard you're all of those people um but the thing is if you were treated as just a person, like without all of these affordances and class expectations placed on you, um, you would be treated in a lot different way, mm. right? Like you could be a hero or a villain or a victim or somebody who makes mistakes or any number of different archetypes. And it would just be a story about you. And it wouldn't be a story that is harmful for an entire group of people or, or like, I don't know, do you know what I mean? Like, so this is, this is what I think about. It's not a question of blanket belief. I think it's more something, something related to being able to see somebody and listen to and integrate, maybe have compassion for their story 
um, without taking into consideration all of those other things about them that becomes more of a trope than about them as a person. Does that make sense? And I don't yeah, know if we- It's so true, right? And I think talking about tropes, like in many ways, like Medusa has become a trope where mm. most of her story isn't actually known. Yeah. Um, you know, that it's a trope, like what we saw in um, the US in politics, where, you know, they took a famous image of Medusa's head and you know it was swapped out and it was replaced with hillary clinton's head so it's like medusa has become a trope so i think you're right like this reductionist idea of when someone shares something that is true to them um is to see them as representative of a whole thing as opposed to an individual mm -hmm. and evaluating them on all of those stereotypes um and not to not discerning whether or not whatever it is they're saying is likely to be factual. Because I think when we're talking about like sexual violence, um, you know, the facts or domestic abuse or anything like this, when a woman speaks out, and even a man, if it happens to a man or someone who um, doesn't, you know, identifies otherwise, that you know, we make it about so much more than the actual events. And we make it about so much more than the facts. And I think we're going to later on, we're going to be talking about Chanel Miller. And I think that's a really great case study in yeah. how like the facts are the facts. And to to hear the facts in the situation, as opposed to making it about anything that you know victim blaming and all of those things but it's so it's not like this weird blind faith thing that you just believe everything anybody says it's like when when people are saying difficult things that we'd rather not hear to see them as individuals and in in so social psych you know we call this the just world hypothesis because we tend to have when someone something bad happens to someone else we tend to believe that it's about who they are as a person. Yeah. So there's something wrong with them. And when bad things happen to us, we tend to believe that um, it was random or it wasn't our fault. Um, yeah. So, you know, like, like, so when we see someone else who's a victim like Medusa is or Chanel Miller or countless others, that we have this kind of natural bias I'm, by saying natural i'm not saying it's right i'm just saying that we have this bias where when something bad happens to someone else to distance ourselves from it so it doesn't so it's like well that can't happen to me because in a just world only bad people have bad things happen to them and i'm a good person so I, they must be bad because i don't want that thing to happen to me Maybe with regard to the belief aspect, it has occurred to me also that belief is a really slippery thing. And as a culture, we put a lot on the idea of belief, you know, in religious contexts or political contexts. Like, what do you legitimately believe? And um, to start with, I think that belief is quite private, and I don't think it's necessarily something that you can help. Like, belief is something that changes really slowly and really progressively, and that process is personal and it's often quite 
random and long. Maybe it's more about treating these kinds of events as just as a default when somebody speaks out and says things like this. We should always be approaching this from a position of taking it really taking it really seriously. Yeah, take it seriously. Because, yeah, this is not about belief, but take it really seriously. And when you're taking these claims seriously, this also applies to how you evaluate evidence, you know? Like you can't, uh, you cannot incorporate belief into this, into this because it, it wiggles in and it sort of contaminates everything quite quickly. And then you get divides, but um, taking it seriously, like somebody would not lie about something like this. If that is the default, let's consider what's happening and just listening really carefully and looking at, you know, the whole constellation. This is going to come in when we talk about Chanel Miller as well, like uh, how she kind of had this it seemed like a really open and shut story to her and to everyone who was involved. And then how it quickly became, you know, a year of her being interrogated about peeing outside. <laughs> and why was she even at that school? And, you know, like the, the process of evaluating the evidence should also be something that's taken really seriously and not become a story about who this person is in their life. Right. It shouldn't be like the, that just world thing. It shouldn't be about their personal yeah. characteristics or what groups they belong to in terms yeah. of like, you know, are they a woman? Are they a minority? Yeah. Um, in Chanel Miller's case, you know, it's, well, she's Asian. You know, it's all these. It, it shouldn't be about those things. It's about the evidence. It's about the facts of what happened. But if it's about the facts of what happens, I think that introduces a certain sense of like it could happen to anyone then. Exactly. And that's that's why that's why I think this just world theory is quite dangerous, because when you're transforming someone into an archetype, um, actually, what you're what you're doing is creating a situation where this is all about you and keeping you personally safe from this idea, like this idea that I don't know, like if I didn't wear a ponytail, maybe I wouldn't be raped. <laughs> you know, there, there are yeah. so many weird ideas that come into this, like if you can just create a perfect villainous situation then you're also creating a series of rules by which this probably wouldn't happen to you. And, um, and that's a really dangerous thing, kind of this idea that you're making this about yourself and not about community care, which is what justice really should be about, making sure that the community cares about you being safe. So it can't be, it can't be you projecting onto a person who requires that safety. And I think, you know, it's so much about projections and just to talk a little bit more about like this, the just world hypothesis hmm. in evolutionary terms, like in evolutionary psychology, you know, there's theories that say like, we need to be able to make snap judgments to survive. Sure. Yeah. But it doesn't make a lot of sense when it's a complex situation, but for as humans, we are always evaluating threats, usually outside of our consciousness. So part of when we hear these difficult stories um, and when we're talking about the myth of Medusa, obviously that's a much safer space because it's not a, an actual living person. But when we hear these stories, there is this like, well, I'm not them. And so they fall into these stereotypes and I don't hit any of those stereotypes. Or I don't know if you've ever had this happen when it's like, like, oh my, I am just like her. Mm. This could happen to me because I do those things too. You know, so I think there's there's that 
there's that what sometimes we distance and use stereotypes to distance but then other times like we have that empathy that comes up hmm. and it's like no she is just like me this totally could happen to me as well um, i've done some of those things and lucky me that that didn't happen to me when I was young and, and went to, you know, those kind of parties, like when I, when I look back when I was really young and went to parties <coughs> and managed to, to escape without those kind of things happening, I think, well, I was lucky when, of course, that shouldn't be the default. It should be like, these things are not this kind of sexual violence that is so ubiquitous in our society. We shouldn't consider ourselves lucky because it doesn't happen to us a certain time. It, you know, because it is a crime. So I want to be clear that even though we're exploring kind of the psychological aspects of this, we're not in any way like explaining away uh, when crimes or abuse are committed or victim blaming. It's helpful to kind of look at a broad kind of like social theory to kind of try to understand why there's so much victim blaming going on. And then the Medusa story is a story of victim blaming. At least part of her story is what sets the kind of sets the chain of events that determine the rest of her short life. It's about victim blaming. Yes. So maybe we should go into the slideshow for those who aren't familiar with Medusa's story. And I, I learned a lot about her story doing this exploration. Um, so let's dive into the slides and see where we okay. begin here. Cindy, can you quickly stop the recording? Okay, so we're back. So let's jump back into the slideshow. So where are we? I'll get this going the right way. Mm -hmm. So that was our invocation that we read. Um, I think we've touched upon some of the themes, sexual violence, betrayal, we'll be talking about that. Women who uphold the power structure in this story symbolized by Athena, goddess of wisdom and so on. Uh, protection, because we're wearing our protective Medusa amulets and these were really widespread and you can still see them in architecture and places today and on the flag for Sicily. <laughs> so we, so this flag, this is a gorgon or medusa on the sicilian flag with snakes in her hair and her wings um and the she the sheaves of wheat representing fertility and fecundity which is also part of the medusa's story so mm -hmm. there's lots to dive into uh we, well we'll begin we'll begin at the beginning in where the idea of a woman with snakes for hair probably originated. Um, so Angela, why don't you talk a little bit about kind of like the Neolithic snake goddess? Sure. So the relationship between goddesses and snakes is quite old. Uh, probably, I don't know, how far back does this go? Maybe like 10,000 years back, you're already finding statues and pottery that involve, a, like, for example, of Inanna holding snakes. Hecate and her relationship to snakes is also quite old and much older, in fact, than, you know, like ideas of Hecate in relation to other human deities 
or goddesses. And the, the reason for this is that snakes represent an idea of um, fertility and renewal. Snakes were also often used in what were called menstruation stories. So stories designed often by older women, one would assume for younger women when they were kind of on the cusp of adulthood, they were designed to explain the feminine mysteries and what they were going to inherit with this sort of power of renewal, renewing the race. Um, so these stories quite typically involve a snake symbolizing wisdom and also the capacity to heal and to harm, typically a red fruit, things like this. So the Garden of Eden, for example, is a menstruation story that has been changed. A lot of these menstruation stories were changed. Um, a lot of common fairy tales were menstruation stories like uh, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, and then um, they were mostly orally passed and then they get kind of like written down, usually by dudes, and, uh, and they become other kinds of stories, you know, stories more reflecting the reality of those men at that time. So they become chivalry stories, like in the case of fairy tales or in the Garden of Eden, punishment stories. And, uh, and I would imagine that this is also something that happened to the Medusa story as well, or the entire concept of the Gorgon, generally speaking, because all Gorgons, sometimes stories say that all like the Gorgon sisters had snakes for hair. And um, when you're seeing characters like this, for example, Circe is a character like this that are kind of sort of sidebar characters, but they have their own story in a larger story. They're quite often, I find, representation of a much representations of a much older idea that the main characters can't really accommodate anymore because the world has changed, structures have changed. But um, characters like Circe or Medusa, for example, are really representing an older idea of what it was to embody the feminine principle and also older ideas of elemental goddesses. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting that, you know, when these stories, when, when the stories started to shift um, from being menstruation stories or great mother stories towards like the, the stories that still kind of dominate our civilization now, even like 2,800 years after Hesiod was first writing about these things, that these characters kind of were becoming background figures because there was a new story being told. And as someone who loves to study these older stories and bring those characters in these myths kind of front and center, whether it's like Hecate or Circe, um, we've done Corey, we've done Persephone, we're, we're going to be doing, I think, Medea in a few months. So these characters that represent this much older idea of the goddess as being like creation and destruction of being birth and death that as a as civilization changed like in the the greek and the roman world that those figures were pushed to the background in these stories i think that's such an excellent point mm. um and with medusa's story like she has her parents so we have an image of her parents uh Porxus and Quito, and they were chthonic figures who um, are were quite old in the stories as well, and that they birthed Medusa and her two sisters. So right from the get-go, Medusa's story has this kind of like 
chthonic means of the earth, not in the sense like mother nature, but like they are of the depths, perhaps linked to the underworld, the ocean. Um, there's something about them that is like deep and dark and mysterious, both, but also when these stories would have been told, there was an idea that what was chthonic like that's where the richness was because a lot of things were kept underground. Like, I mean, we still talk about buried treasure, but they actually would keep like uh, grain and they would store things underground. So chthonic doesn't just mean like, like a dark goddess figure. It has this kind of complicated nuance that it's something mm -hmm. very old. It's something to do with the underworld or the other world, something to do with, um, what lies beyond like regular life, but it's very different than being like an Olympic or what we might say like an ascended or solar God today. So, so she comes from this lineage. Um, so that's where she begins. Those are her parents. She has two sisters. Um, we'll get to them in a minute. And we found this beautiful work of art of uh, Medusa by Dante Gabrielle Rossetti before she was turned into um, the monstrous one with the snakes for hair. So I think this is, I, I wanted to find this and you and I had to go on a bit, bit of a hunt to find this painting because seeing who Medusa was before the thing that defined her happened, I feel like it's important because I feel like in my own life and in other women's lives, who we were before the thing that happened to us that changed us, perhaps made us, you know, seem frightening or off-putting to others because we need to protect ourselves so much, like re reclaiming that girl. And when I see private climate, clients, sorry, when I see private clients, one of the exercises we often do is I have them create an altar to who they were before, before, you know, and to go back and find her and honor her and elevate her. So we wanted to elevate that, the Kore, the maiden Medusa, before the thing that happened to her that was beyond her control, um, changed her forever. And who she was as an individual and how people saw her. Because in Medusa's case, of course, how people see her is, was really important to the story. Yeah. So should we tell the story? For well, I think we've got some slides on the story. Okay. Great. I think we're getting. I think we're getting there. Okay. Oh, we want to talk about Medusa's sisters for a minute first. <laughs> <laughs> so this is in an amphora. So in some versions of the Medusa story, she has two sisters. They're called the Gorgons. Gorgon means basically protector. Um, so I did find this amphora and I know they look so adorable. They don't look like scary, <laughs> they don't look like scary, monstrous sisters whose blood could poison you or heal you, um, with snakes in their hair. They look cute. Yeah. And they have, they're supposed, they're meant to have uh, scales as well for, for skin, but they're just the cutest. I want them on my desk. I want to talk to them. <laughs> and I feel like we need to have this vase reproduced so we can have yeah. so this is a we're going to return to this vase in a few slides. Mm -hmm. So again, this dates back to about 700 before the Common Era and Hesiod 
he wrote about the Gorgons as sea demons. And they had, there were three of them. There was Medusa, the queen, your Eli, the fire springer are of the wide sea, sea and Angela's favorite. Stino. Stino, yeah. the mighty. Yeah. And Medusa was the only one who was human. Yes. Apparently. So now we, I think we should talk about the story. So I think there's many different versions of Medusa's story. The one that we, we usually start with like oh, what Ovid had to say about these stories. Ovid is always a great place to begin to understand these stories. So Ovid was Roman. So writing later, much later. And then Hes Hesia, we're talking about a hundreds of years span. So why don't you give us the synopsis of Medusa's story? Definitely. Yeah, because when Hesiod writes the Theogony, Medusa is already Medusa and he doesn't actually say very much about her. Um, and then you have a, the full story that people kind of know a little bit or that inspires a lot of what people think they know, which comes from Ovid's Metamorphosis. So the story is a Medusa is a young woman. She's apparently quite beautiful. The most beautiful thing about her is her hair. There's a lot in this about a, just the beauty of her hair and how it falls and how it curls and it's lovely. And people just waited for her all the time. Like she had a lot of suitors and um, she enters the temple of Athena. And, uh, and while she's there, Poseidon takes notice of her and he comes and violates her, which is sort of like the, the difficult crux of the story. And, uh, and then he leaves um, like bro gods do. And Athena comes and upset that her temple is desecrated. She punishes Medusa by, uh, by giving her snakes for hair and creating a context where Medusa essentially has to hide away because now she's dangerous. Like if anybody looks at her, they will turn into stone. So this is the this is essentially the story of Medusa. And then uh, you know she's off hiding, and then you know Perseus, who's part of another story, like just ends up on this hunt to find her um, for totally separate goals that are unrelated to her story at all. And the things that happen in his interaction with her are the real reason that we also think of her as a monster, but before she encounters Perseus, she's really just hiding after Athena has punished her. Yeah, yeah, she's hiding. And you were doing um, one of the other books that we're doing this month is a YA version of the Medusa story by Jesse Burton. Um, who's an amazing novelist. And this is a beautiful little book suited for, I would say, like, say, 14, 15 and up. And in this story, you know, uh, Medusa's isolation is really front and center that she had to go to this island because, you know, she didn't want to turn people to stone. So, you know, there's this idea that this was done to her as opposed to like, I think in the earlier versions when her and the Gorgons were born that way. Mm. So there may be some kind of nuggets in the fact that in the, the later shifting where her beauty, which, um, you know, was pure and chaste and innocent. And then when her beauty was defiled, that she was, then she became the monster. So she didn't start off as a monster, but it wasn't until after 
um, you know, she was violated and punished for it. So I think that's an important kind of thing to land on for a minute or two is that this idea that women who are raped deserve it. Mm. You know, that they did something. In Medusa's case, it was her hair. Her hair was just too damn pretty. So how could Poseidon have um, resisted her? So the fault was that it, the fault was hers. It wasn't his. Yeah, and this is also such a complex story because she is, of course, punished by a woman, another woman, and um, and also a goddess that people often in culture tend to love. You know, Athena is the goddess of wisdom and also strategy. She's a generally speaking, she's she's seen as quite a cool goddess in the culture. But uh, but this is part of why Medusa is so interesting because you really have to think about sort of the work that the story is doing in the time of its telling, and also it's very hard to understand the Medusa story and everything that's coming out of the Medusa story and the real function of this crown of snakes, unless you also understand what happened to Athena, Athena and the work that she's doing in that culture as well. Could you talk a little bit more about like Athena's place in the culture yeah. at the time? Yeah, definitely. So Athena, so many times when we're thinking about classical Greece, um, we're kind of thinking that we're that we're looking at like the the sort of ancient, uh, authentic idea of Greece, you know, with all the gods and we know all their names and all of their hijinks, etc. But um, this Greece is already like a a recent version of you know previous iterations of Greece, and uh, a lot of these gods already existed in those previous iterations. And Athena is one of them. She probably came from a uh, Crete, like a lot of a. Uh, many of the other gods in the pantheon, for example, uh, Aphrodite, Hera, Hermes, they also come from Crete, they precede the formal Greek pantheon. And uh, generally speaking, she was a goddess, it's hard to know everything or all of the, the things that she was, this is the case for a lot of the gods like this, because the Greek pantheon is so hard and dominant. And um, it was also a colonial project, right? So they worked really hard to get rid of all the stuff that came before. But what we know of Athena is that uh, she was really into the arts, particularly pottery, weaving, um, advancing the idea of the arts and sort of the creative principle among the Minoans specifically, which was you know, one of the places where she was revered. And uh, she was also quite a protective entity. You know, it was said that there, you know, the sort of the protection, like the protective shield around this people was so strong that they couldn't be penetrated. And uh, I suppose that there's some truth to that because uh, when ultimately these people were colonized by people from the north who came with like their bro gods, <laughs> including Zeus and all of his bro dudes, um, they kind of, I think it's Charlene Spretnak in um, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece who concludes it in such a gorgeous way, they kind of carry Athena off and make her a soldier. And um, so when you get to the classical Greek pantheon, what you're looking at is a, a culture, probably several cultures that have been colonized. And in a colonization process, what typically happens is that the dominant culture takes the old stories, kind of fractures and cuts them up, and then uh, rejiggers the main characters in order to fit them inside their mythological framework. And that's kind of what the Greek pantheon is. And one of the reasons why it's so memorable and so strong is because um, 
it's really effective for what that society was because it's the society that we often credit with giving birth to our own. So all of these figures are really recognizable. One of the big things that happened and to return to Athena is um, that all of the goddesses that came from these other places um, become these more two dimensional flattened versions of themselves. Like they become more reflections of how women behave inside a patriarchy. So you have a Hera who was quite a complex goddess of unions who like most of what you know about her is this, this shrewish wife who's constantly being cheated on. She's always mad about it. Um, Aphrodite who's always just sleeping around <laughs> or <laughs> getting other people to sleep around or people wanna sleep with her. And um, Athena who, uh, it feels so delicate to say this but to understand the Medusa story, it's really important to say it. She becomes this kind of a, that kind of woman who's in power, who could uh, who could do a lot of good in theory, but mainly she functions as this apologist for patriarchy and for male power. She's mostly interested in men, like Odysseus, for example, um, and she's notably really um, unsympathetic to women. Like uh, if you take the Medusa story, or the story of Arachne, or even the story of um, Orestes, when you know she has to tie break his uh, judicial proceedings and basically says, mothers are less important than fathers, so not a big deal. <laughs> like, it doesn't matter that, you know, you killed your mother because she murdered your dad. Um, so she really, she's functioning very much in this way um, for the purposes of this particular patriarchy because classical Greece is on its face a patriarchy. They actually did have a lot of problems with feminism and women wanting more rights, incidentally. But the, the Medusa thing is also really interesting because before Athena became the sort of soldier goddess who, you know, she has these very hardened characteristics that you probably recognize in your own life, of like, you know, when other women hurt you or take advantage of you or, you know, stereotypes about how women just don't like each other. That's sort of the energy of the Athena that was created. Before she was that kind of Athena, she was also really associated with um, the feminine principle and notably snakes, you know, like a woman's capacity to both heal and harm. And uh, so the interesting thing about the way that she punishes Medusa in this story is that by giving her a head of snakes and making it kind of the worst thing that could happen to her, the implication is sort of the entire idea of feminine power is the worst thing that can happen to you. I'm punishing you with it. So I'm also like um, not assuming it, like she kind of like Athena herself condemns this power and it creates a, a kind of huge problem for, for Medusa herself, you know, like um, now she's a danger to herself and others. And because she's wearing this power in such a visible way, um, she will by no fault of her own. She's not the person like looking to kill people. They also have to come and find her. Um, she will be killed because of it. Um, so it's a very powerful resonant lesson, um, not necessarily by Athena, although it's meaningful that it's shown to be her hand, um, but by the, the sort of system that's you know designing these stories. And we should note that um, Ovid and the Romans uh, mm. called Athena Minerva. So yes. we're talking about the same figure again, linking back to what you were saying about colonization, you know, so the Greeks colonized a lot of areas mm. and took um, figures, mythic figures, gods and 
goddesses and other kind of mythological bits squished them into their cultural ideals um, then the romans did the same things to the greeks yeah. and so you have this lineage of these stories being told and retold over like at least a thousand years of what we have in terms of records right if you go from like hesiod to ovid and then kind of the ones that come after ovid as christianity takes hold and then this whole stories of course become um, seen as vulgar and so then the stories are still told but they're still told as stories that you don't want to do like you don't want to yeah. love these stories or these stories are not teaching you things they're they're bad and you know there's the the snake is bad and then when we get into the christian era and the story of um eve and adam you see the same thing like that snake is the ultimate expression of the feminine principle and it is what causes all the problems. Um, you know, and it, we also link back to like Pandora and other stories, mm -hmm. this idea that women are basically evil um, and were associated with snakes. And like you said about her hair being da potentially dangerous to her as well, um, and that it isolated her, that to be ultimately feminine, which is that you deserve to be isolated, you deserve to be feared. And that when others gaze upon like this pure expression of the feminine, they will turn to stone. And uh, although that sounds like a cool superpower, you know, it's ultimately like completely isolating. No one will ever be close to Medusa again. So it's like this cautionary tale in, on so many levels when we try to look at it from the perspective of the time in which the stories were told you know yeah. that it was a cautionary tale first of all um don't be alone in a temple and don't look too good which that still applies in 2022 um and the other is like if you are in this scenario and you are the one who is victimized it's your fault um, you were the yeah. one who seduced the God, the powerful male figure. It's not their fault for using their power over them. They're blameless and you're, you carry all the blame and therefore, and almost like, you know, like the Scarlet Letter, which yeah. is another great literary work, right? Like that explores this. It's like the woman has to bear the brunt of the act, even though they didn't, they're not to blame. Um, but yeah. just they are the seductress and men are not to blame and the women who uphold that structure which that is the role athena plays in this story right that you know like the thing happens to the woman and the woman in charge or the woman who has some power in the situation she doesn't she sides with the guy yeah, yeah. and when you think of like like the me too movement or you think of stories of um, like abuse and incest in families where the mother doesn't believe, you know, it's the same type of thing, right? It's we, that theme gets repeated that the, the woman who's in power has to often, from her perspective, at least, in order to maintain her position and maintain order, she has to punish the victim. 
And it's also such a shame inducing punishment, you know, because hair is such an intimate thing. It invites intimacy, even if it's not necessarily infinite intimacies that you want. There's a smell in it. Um, you know, it has its own sort of waviness when it moves that's separate from the rest of your body. Um, and it's, it's clearly very much a part of, you know, Medusa's particular brand of femininity. femininity. So for Athena to sort of zero in on that and convert it to snakes, you know, a thing that distances people while also, you know, ironically representing like the most flagrant symbolism of feminine power, but in this dangerous way um, is also really a, it can, if you're being punished that way, it creates shame inside you because the implication is some, it, it's related to this idea that it's about something that you are, you know, like it's about your hair. And, uh, and this is where the punishment is chosen. It's really, it's really quite terrible, actually. You know, something that I've been thinking about, which I, I do think it's, it's related to this, but perhaps in a tangential way, is yeah. how oftentimes when someone is a survivor of trauma, um, you know, sexual violence, that, you know, if you look at uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk's work, like, you know, on how the body stores all of this, like the body actually carries the shame and it causes like bodily transformations, like we'll develop chronic pain, other forms of chronic illness, um, irritable bowel syndrome. So, you know, in our kind of modern world where we have this bizarre dichotomy where literally like our head is separate from our body, which is important in this story, um, that you know, like we we see psychological consequences of such things like depression, anxiety, PTSD. We see those as being not of the body, which of course they are. Like we, unlike Medusa, have our heads attached to our bodies. Um, so, but also like when we have these things happen to us, when they are done to us, like we often develop syndromes and health problems that we tend to see as more physiological, but I would also argue that PTSD, nightmares, and so on, like all of that, that's the snakes in our hair. So if you have like, you know, chronic fatigue or all of those other um, problems that are often brought about by the physiological changes caused by trauma, like in our society, you become like a Medusa, that you're like an untouchable one because not only were you traumatized, but now you're not the same as everybody else. Oh yeah. It is like being crowned by sort of the, the repercussions of your trauma. And it's very isolating too, you know, like whatever kind of disability that you might have from trauma, it's very isolating in that, you know, talking about trauma and explaining I mean, if you could imagine Medusa trying to explain to someone like in the YA novel by Jesse Burton, the way this plays out is that, you know, the Perseus, her murderer comes to the island and um, Medusa like hides from him. So he never sees her, but they develop a relationship. And it's just that, you know, if she lets someone know, lets him know who she really is, then everything will fall apart. And I think for people who are victims of trauma, I think they get that, yeah. right? 
you know, so if you know my whole story, if you know why I have this disability or, you know, I'm very self-protective or whatever it is, if you know about my snakes in my hair, um, then you'll turn to stone in a sense because I'll lose you in my life. Yeah, there's a, there's a, it's, it's really strange what you're saying, this aspect of, a, in addition to being seen as a victim, you'll also be seen as something that's broken. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not functioning in quite a normal way. Like I've seen it a lot, like when people tell stories of, a, you know, their, their sexual violence stories, or for example, when I've told my sexual violence stories, sometimes like to illustrate a separate point, but uh, sometimes you can kind of see the change in the way that people look at you where, where you know, like, ah, I, like they're seeing me now as a victim. And they're also like putting things like together in their mind, like, ah, this is why she's this way. And this is why she's that way. Like, you know, they're kind of like building a broken toy narrative. And uh, it's useful to kind of talk that out with people. Like they might not always necessarily see what that that's what they're doing, but it's also useful to know that that's something that people do. And it's a, it's kind of a thing that's been, the, the system is kind of, I hate saying the system because it's so general, but that we've been kind of educated to do, not only inside of our, inside of our current cultural system, but you know, over thousands of years, in fact, um, like we've been operating in patriarchies that you know, treat us this way and, uh, and the myths that we draw from also nourish that idea. Um, it's important to keep in mind. It doesn't mean that there's not a better way that we can be, but it does mean that these stories that we draw from are old, so they feel natural. That's such a good point. Okay, so we wanted to talk, so you've talked a bit about Athena or Athene or Minerva, depending on um, how you, whatever you want to call her, basically. I want you now to just touch upon, like, let's go a little bit deeper into what these snakes might represent. Mm -mm. So this is a passage from Red Moon, which is a book about menstruation, a lot of the mythology around menstruation by Miranda Gray. Uh, the goddess Athena, who was a virgin goddess of wisdom and intellect, also carried images of her darker aspect. The Gorgon's head was closely associated with Athena, being pictured on her shield or on her aegis. In legend, the Gorgon was Medusa, a woman with snakes for her hair, whose deadly gaze turned men to stone. Her blood had the power to kill or to renew, depending on which vein it came from. The fact that her face was surrounded by writhing snakes, reflecting the image of the vulva, made her a symbol of sexuality, regeneration, creation, renewal, and death. Athena was also depicted with the owl, with its associations with death and the powers of prophecy. One thing that I would like to bring up here is, um, the Ovid story of Medusa is not the only story of Medusa that we have. There are a lot of stories that, um, that we've also lost because a lot of these stories were orally passed down. But um, like Cindy and I were talking about much earlier in this presentation, it's often said that you know, Medusa was among you know, two other Gorgons, like her sisters, um, and that they all had snakes for hair and they were all kind of living on the edge of the world, just this awesome Gorgon life <laughs> by the sea. <laughs> Um, so, so this is also a story about how an idea of something has kind of been taken to explain something else. So 
what's interesting about the the Ovid story is it talks about like it takes these very visual aspects right like um yes Athena has been associated with snakes and um you know you have these gorgons who are these snake people they're related to elemental ideas what Cindy was talking about earlier the catonic is not only about being from deep earth it's also from being it's a, it's also about being from deep time when something is described as a catonic creature Often the implication is a this creature is coming from a lineage that even precedes the gods, which is a which is a really useful thing to keep in mind because uh, one of the one of the issues um, of Olympus was that it was a like from a political god perspective was that a, it was quite a new idea. It was like a brand new Senate. Um, Zeus was very concerned with like making sure that he was making like fair choices that everyone saw him as fair that you know no one god was too powerful, et cetera, because um, this was really new. And he really wanted to make sure that the branding of Olympus was generally positive, that people wanted it. Um, they also had a counter branding of like, a, you know, the Titans that, uh, that preceded them, the Titans that they destroyed before. And the idea was the Titans were real elemental. They were violent. Nobody wants to go back to that time again. They've been buried deep under the earth. So Olympus is the first idea of a Senate and uh, he really needs it to go well. So when you're looking at the at this Ovid story, you know, which comes much later um, in Roman times, and Roman Rome is like, you know, the perfect sort of like patriarchy plus bureaucracy. <laughs> they take they've taken a lot of notes. Um, so the, the the interesting thing about this Ovid story is it takes this idea of the Gorgon, which is very old and elemental, associated with women, et cetera. And it spins it into this story about a, a woman who's just too beautiful. You know, her hair is just, oh, it's so seductive. You know, you, you also see this um, commonly now, like even in modern religions or modern, um, modern tellings of uh, violations. Like we were talking about Chanel Miller, one of the things that she was critiqued for was like, you know, how she was wearing her hair the night that she was, um, the night that she was violated. So hair is still very much like a, an idea that you can be punished for just as much as you can be rewarded for it, you know, depending on what happens to you as a, as a woman or a femme. And uh, this idea of, you know, kind of taking that idea and also saying, yes, well, Athena used to be associated with snakes um, and just having these two ideas meet. Like actually Athena can legitimately be associated with snakes, even with all of that bad stuff related to snakes, because uh, actually she uses snakes, she used snakes to punish this Gorgon. Like, you know, the history is kind of rewritten there. The Gorgons weren't originally snake people. There was actually a gorgeous girl um, who seduced the wrong kind of person. So Athena made her a snake head, which is the worst thing that could have ever happened to her. And, uh, and then Athena went and sent Perseus to kill her. And then she became a weapon. That's another thing too. Like a, she's not actually weaponized until her head is off her body. So she never actually uses her own power as a weapon. It's what Perseus does afterward um, that makes her an idea of a weapon. Um, you know, so he comes and he he takes her head and he kills all his enemies. And then he gives her head to Athena. And that's when Athena gets to snap those snakes onto her shield and be legitimately associated with snakes, like through this very roundabout story that still separates her from the feminine principle and makes it punitive. And, uh, and then it just becomes part of her fierceness. Really, really weird. Right, in service to battle and 
um, yeah, you know, exactly. kind of civilization, expansion, all of those kind of Greco-Roman ideas, right? About, yeah. like you said, the Senate um, and all of that. So let's Just talk, we haven't was. talked too much about Perseus. So yes. we have these two amazing slides um, to kind of talk about Perseus. So what happens, Athena has um, punished Medusa like this. She's isolated, she's on her own. And you mentioned earlier that um, in a seemingly unrelated story elsewhere, <laughs> there is a young hero who wants to prove himself so he can marry somebody. Um, and his, that hero's name is Perseus. And like with Odysseus and Heracles or Hercules, Perseus has to go off and do a bunch of stuff in order to get what he get what he wants, which is the girl, um, the, the good girl who's, you know, home waiting, the good woman who's home waiting and so on. So we have the on the right. If you're watching this, you can see that's Perseus uh, from a sculpture from um, Antonio Canova painted in the it's not painted, created in the early 19th century. And he's holding the head of Medusa up high. And then on the left, we have a very contemporary um, sculpture of Medusa, like a role reversal, mm -hmm. um, where Medusa slays Perseus. So there is a lot of reclaiming going on. But just to go back to Perseus and that whole part of the story for a bit, um, Angela, why don't you tell that part of the, 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 the more traditional tale? Sure. I don't know the Perseus story super well, but yeah, like it's kind of like um, there's this whole story involving his mother. Oh, yeah, that's right. So his mother is Dene. Um, and there's a prophecy surrounding Dene, this idea that uh, if Dene has a baby, it's going to kill her father, who's a king. And he super freaks out. So he locks her up in a tower. But, you know, that never stops Zeus. So he <laughs> He comes and he meets Dene as a beam of sort of like magical sparkly light and gets her pregnant. Um, so her father doesn't want to upset Zeus. So he just kind of like pops Dene and the baby who's Perseus in a chest. <laughs> they, they just float off into a new kingdom where I guess uh, the story takes place. It's the, the details are kind of vague for me, but yeah, there's a king and there's a, yeah, there's a girl that King, there's a girl there's a guy yeah. the guy has to yeah. do stuff and then yeah, what, does exactly. he, what does he do so he goes to he goes he has to find medusa so he's not like it isn't that perseus hates medusa no and wants you know like she is probably never even heard of her yeah right? and the king like kind of like raises it like just bring me the head of medusa because he doesn't think it's possible like he'll get killed on the way or right because she turns everybody to stone yeah, that looks upon her. So he's clever and um, petitions the gods to help him out. So by the time he gets to Medusa, uh, we I think we have a painting later on that mm. kind of like highlights all all how the gods give him all this really cool swag. So he yeah, can, they give him the action pack. They, yeah. they give him the action pack. He, <laughs> give him the one that costs all the coins in the game, um, mm -hmm. but. So he kills Medusa and by using a shield 
to reflect the shield of, uh, the shield of Athena, right? The shield, the shield of Athena. Athena gives him the shield. So instead of looking directly at her, he uses the reflection. Yeah. And since he's not looking directly at her, he can be easily behead her. The, the details of this have always kind of befuddled me. Like, if you're, how would you actually do that, Angela? Like, you're holding a shield and looking at the shield. You can't look at the person because you'll, so you've got your sword arm like this, but you can't. It's very confusing. I like to imagine it as, you know, when you're when you're trying to do something in the back of your head, like through, yeah, right? through two mirrors and you're just trying to figure this out. But isn't it also, cause she's not moving. If I recall correctly in the story, she's asleep. So he's just kind of like, I don't know, like sauntering back there to where she's sleeping. And he just has to, he has a lot of time in fact to measure his movements cause it's not an active battle, right? Yeah, she's that's true. She's sleeping, so he can tiptoe. Yeah. A lot of these things that these heroes in the the Greek and Roman stories do doesn't like if you they don't make sense. And and I can like because that's who I am. I can get really hung up on like that. Actually, makes no sense. Plot hole. There is a plot hole. Um, a little bit. A little, little bit. Yeah. <laughs> so there's been also so she, much reclaiming yeah. around Medusa's story, and Medusa has really become a feminist icon. Um, mm -hmm. So this yeah. sculpture, which is by um, a man became like a talisman of the Me Too movement. So this statue is very like relevant today. Um, and the statue is in New York City, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And it's funny because when we like early days of prepping for this talk, Angela and I both completely separately grabbed this image um, at like as an early talisman for where we wanted to go with this talk. So that statue of like, and it bespeaks the question, like what would happen um, if Medusa slayed Perseus? If all of us who are victim blamed, victim shamed, what if instead of just being used and abused and even killed, um, and certainly like what goes on in social media these days, it feels a lot like like personality murder um mm -hmm. what if instead we claim the head of perseus and that we went after the powerful the the heroic the you know all those ones who were out to kind of get us it's a very it's a very it's very moving to see these two yeah. statues side by side it is especially because uh the one on the right is quite famous it gets appropriated and used all the time but another thing that i really love about the one on the left is that it also repositions the naked female body in art. Quite often, particularly for Greek goddess figures, um, you'll see a woman naked, like a you know, like the Venus Pudica is a very is a very well known one. Um, but it's always a they're positions that when you start thinking about it, they make you feel a little sick. You know, mm -hmm. like um, Venus kind of like covering herself up and holding. Her genitals the implication being she's she's a bit worried that she could be raped you know like um and these are the the images in which women are often depicted naked in sculpture you know they're covering themselves like it's there's the suggestion of you're not supposed to be here this is kind of our picture of femininity that we pass through the culture um but naked medusa here is very full frontal and very strong. You know, there's this aspect of, she doesn't really care what parts of her you see, 
but it's also very confrontational. I think you have a great quote in the, in the presentation later about how so many depictions of Medusa are this way. They're so frontal. And they more this image, this sculpture more resembles the way that men are depicted naked than women. You know, they're not coquettish. They're not trying to seduce you. There's a lot of force and danger there. And there's also pathos in her face, which, uh, which is something that I quite love. Right, and she also doesn't look like psychologically unstable, which is another theme in art, right? Depictions of women, like if a woman is powerful, um, then she's also dangerous and she's probably bananas as well. Yeah, there's this outpouring of emotion that has yeah. to come out at the same time, yeah. So there are three kind of ways that Medusa is depicted in visual art and also different ways that she was used because like to call all of these things works of art, some of them are as simple as door knockers and parts of houses. Mm -hmm. So we've got a couple of examples here. We've got um, a Gorgon at Apollo's temple in Delphi and this really famous it is a chandelier or a candelabra. It, that's what it's designed um, to hold candles with Medusa's face in the middle. And in this one, you know, she's got the scary teeth and she's not beautiful. And she has, I think it looks like she's got a beard too. So sometimes these Gorgons could be more like feminine looking, like the one from uh, Apollo's temple or they took on this really monstrous visage. Yeah. So there's very a, mythic creature yeah. elements. Yeah. Not at all like the femininity gets really lost. Yeah. Um, so there's that way. And then she's depicted with her two sisters. And then, of course, on her own as the Medusa. So, but these, like even today, like if you look at the logo for Versace, like this image of Medusa as an emblem, um, as like a logo, which still kind of persists, which I find really fascinating. But these were most likely all used um, as protective energies that having this on your house or having this candelabra, we'll see some other works of art, that it was it, about protecting um, and it's different than like amphoras and so on that depict the mythology. This is like Medusa herself, the Gorgon herself is a talisman. Yeah. Yeah. Apotropaic magic. Apotropaic. Yeah. There, this is also, it's still the case in Italy, for example, a lot of buildings, a lot of houses still have a, the figure over the door. So there's this great article um, from the Met Museum that talks about at length about Medusa in ancient Greek art. So it's really interesting. And Angela, you have a head of Medusa. What is that a door knocker? It's a yeah, it's supposed to be I think it's for a very, very big door. And it's supposed to be yeah, like to help you open the door. You know, the what do you call this a doorknob a door handle? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a door handle. Yeah, and it's at the Musée Bordel. Antoine Bordel was, um, he was a student of, 
I can't remember. I can't remember who his teacher was. He's very well known. It doesn't matter. But yes, this is his sculpture of the head of Medusa. So after Perseus decapitated Medusa, Athena takes the head and it goes on the shield and the shield also becomes her aegis, which is like a shield, but also part of her dress. It's a little bit complicated. Um, in, in different stories, the aegis is depicted differently. So she, Athena, like you mentioned, Athena incorporates the reviled feminine um, into her into her countenance, basically, that it becomes part of her. So not only has she conquered like what we might call like wild femininity or an older chthonic femininity, she wears it like a badge of honor that this has been killed. You know, yeah. any part of myself that was wild and older um, has been conquered. And now I am this modern creature who upholds the laws of civilization and helps my civilization like advance and grow because you know we are the superior people um and so on so something we didn't yet talk about what like what happened Medusa the mother so when Perseus mm. chops off her head she's Medusa, pregnant she was pregnant who pregnant knew? from Poseidon yeah <laughs> she was pregnant but from by Poseidon and she has two children and I think a lot of people will know that she gave birth to the beautiful winged horse Pegasus but she also gave birth to the gentle warrior giant um, Chrysaor, which I, I think a lot of times people, Chrysaor for whatever reason is not part of the story. <coughs> um, and then the two sisters, the two other Gorgons are so outraged that they pursue um, Perseus. And then because he's got Hermes winged boots and Hades magical helmet, um, he escapes. Yeah, he has so much magic stuff. He has so much <laughs> magic stuff. Like he's fully, fully kitted out, but the, the Gorgons were outraged and pursued him with great fury. Um, and then of course he had to turn all the bad guys in his opinion to stone and rescue Andromeda. Um, and then he gave Athena Medusa's head. So she could slap it on her armor. This is always, that is a very good strategy when you think about it. Like the moment that Athena puts Medusa on her armor, it's like, yes, like I've conquered this idea of feminine power so I can be associated with it, but only as a conquest. So any future time that you ever see Athena with snakes, or if you see something much older, that associates her with snakes. You will associate it still with this idea of her conquest and not suspect that she had an older association, you know, like there's this other femininity of Athena that gets lost. That's and buried. For me, like being a certain age and thinking yeah. like growing up in the eighties, which I did, mm -hmm. I think about like how like women were perceived then Hmm. You know, and in that, like in order to, it's like, it's a man's world. So you had to eschew your femininity. And even now, like when it comes to the work world, you know, feminine, what we might think of a more feminine way of seeing the world, like more intuitive, perhaps less combative, more collaborative, 
even that is still not value today. But certainly when I was growing up in the 80s, like the power suit, the shoulder pads, like there was a whole kind shoulder of like, pads. the shoulder yeah. pads were like, you know, it was we had to like change our bodies so much that we had big shoulders. Like it was like our ages in the 80s, right? Like wearing these ridiculous shoulder pads. And yeah, of course, all the supermodels so angular. <laughs> like, right? So it was like we had to get rid of all the femininity and, you know, hide it, stick it in our, like stick it on our ages. So I just keep thinking about that. Like Athena, if Athena was in the 80s, she would have been wearing like a power suit. Definitely, Definitely. power suit Athena. Mm -hmm. Power suit Athena. So this is another amazing work of art. Um, the the Taza Farnese or the Farnese cup. And in exploring just how common these images of Medusa were, like they're on, you know, they're on dishes, they're on cups, they're on plates, <coughs> on amphoras, on storage jars, they're over doorways. Um, so we're not talking like this is a great work of art, but we're talking about like Medusa was like part of everyday life mm. um, for many in the ancient Greek and Roman worlds, right? Because these things were super common. She was on coins, like the coins that we're wearing. And even today in Sicily, I think they still have Medusa on coins. So Medusa is like part of everyday life. And why, like, why do we need this constant reminder? <coughs> and also, so this is a clip. The clip I have on this slide comes from an article that's a little over 100 years old. I like to look at these like articles published in academic journals when there's kind of that shift into how we see these figures now <clears throat> to explore like what the thinking was when this shift started to happen. So with a lot of the myths that come from the Greek and Roman world, there was a lot of academic scholarship happening like in the Victorian period. And that really, because they were doing a lot of the translations. And so that's really shaped how we see these figures today, because a lot of times what we refer to are the translations and the ideas that the, the ones who, at this time in the late Victorian era, the ideas that they were formulating based on what you're, they were reading still mm -hmm. really like infuse um, the popular ideas along, like around these mythological figures today. So, you know, we've talked before about, you know, the new translation of the Odyssey. I think we talked once or twice about even other translations of the Bible, how certain mm -hmm. words in the Bible actually, if you go back to the original Greek, that's not at all what Jesus was saying, for example. Yeah. Um, so there's this idea that this is all filtered through a historical lens. And it may not be what the original text actually are saying and that when we go and look at it today it may be saying things differently and at the same time i think this idea of the terror that the feminine is terrifying that there's always a monster a feminine monster um who's around us like i think we still see this yeah. in our like our society today in popular culture um, not just a Medusa figure, but like other reminders that, um, you know, if you are a woman that gets cast out 
that you you become a monster, but that that monster is also somehow protective. I think it, it's a really complicated idea. And that like you started, I think early in the our talk about how like beauty and ugliness are two sides of the same coin. And this cup really reminds me of that. Cause you know, on one side there's this very um, pastoral scene of the gods. And then on the other, there is Medusa. <laughs> I actually almost wonder if the protective aspects, like the, the apotropaic, apotropaic magic aspect of Medusa is, because um, the, the interesting thing about myths is even when they've been changed for political purposes or whatever kinds of purposes, they, they always nest some aspect of their older DNA, right? Like, um, so we were talking earlier about how the older Gorgons, they were, they were these sorts of um, mythic creatures, you know, they were scaled, they had long teeth, they, they often had like, a, they had snakes for hair already, like I'm not talking about the Ovid story, but older. Um, and uh, their name already represented an idea of protection. They were already protective entities, gatekeeper entities. So I mean, the Ovin Medusa story kind of tells a story about how like, well, yes, like Athena put it on her shield and maybe that's how it became, you know, like a protective entity in common time. Um, like it's already begun to wiggle in. But I also feel like if it's still used in particularly this way, like on coins, on cups, like over doors, like there's sometimes Medusa is used to revile certain ideas, you know, to condemn certain ideas, address them frontally. But uh, sometimes she's also used in these, more often, in fact, she's used in these quite passive ways, you know, um, as a protective symbol. And I do, I do wonder if actually this is a vestige of an older story of what Medusa was before, you know, this Roman and probably also earlier Greek treatment um, that just bleeds through because that's, kind of the truthful essence of how earlier versions of us related to her. And it was just never erased. Am I making sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And it makes me think of like, we're doing um, Anodia next, um, who is a very old goddess, but also a as a title is associated with Hecate and Artemis and others. And it means like the road goddess, but she was also associated with crossroads and thresholds. Yeah. And there's this idea, like you said, of their protective magic of having these goddess figures that were frightening um, if they were on your side, like an evil eye, you know, they kept the bad guys away. Yeah. yeah. And I exactly. think like for people who collect, my oldest son collects like horror memorabilia from horror movies and novels. And I think like for him, that functions almost in a similar way. You know, in our obsession with like true crime and society today and horror as a genre, like I wonder if it's like a kind of modern Medusa. Yeah, like you're gorging yourself with these horrible details, but on some level, you also feel like it's useful for you to know. Right. And okay. gorge and gorgon, of course, are related in etymological terms. So we wanted to find a few pictures of art, ancient art that depicted the Aegis, Medusa's head on Athena. So we found two examples. We found a statue where you can see the Aegis is kind of on her scarf. Well, that like an the Aegis can be different things. 
But yeah. the Aegis is basically because at one point I think it evolves into something that's almost like a battle girdle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's Medusa's head on this statue from about the um like 450, 440 before the common era. <clears throat> and then there's this one from around the same time um on a bowl where she has Medusa on her as well. So, you know, there's this idea of if we want to say about like the protective at aspect of Medusa and that this is probably a much older idea than these stories and much broader because generally the Gorgon was used this way in homes and all kinds of places as yeah. this kind of evil eye um, yeah. that Medea wearing, sorry, not Medea, where did Medea has shown up? Athena wearing that is indicative of like her role as a protector too. Mm -mm. Um, and here is, I have, I do think, I had not seen this before, and I am quite taken with this John Singer Sargent um, painting of Medusa, which is actually at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. I've been there many times, and I don't remember seeing this, but now I'm like, oh, the next time I go, I'm going to see this. So this tells the whole story in one beautiful work of art. You have uh, Perseus, who has slain Medusa and Athena is taking the head of Medusa. And then as Pegasus is birthed out of Medusa's bloody neck, mm -hmm. um, Perseus is astride Pegasus, the winged horse. And Pegasus, of course, is bedecked in all of the, the gifts that the superpowers that yeah. the gods gave him. Yeah, he's wearing her hat. Singles, <laughs> the cool he's hat. got all the things. Yeah. And I, I just love that kind of art. The art, it's really beautiful. Yeah, there's so much going on in it as well. <laughs> there is. And then we have Caravaggio's, who I have been, as we've been studying Medusa, this is the work of art that's really, really enchanted me the most. <clears throat> and I actually, I texted you all excited that I found a whole documentary on uh, Caravaggio, who lived <clears throat> in the 16th century in Italy. There's something about the humanity of Medusa in this that really it has that frisson you know it does something to me that I don't quite have the right words for mm, yeah the shock the horror and that she looks very human she she doesn't look like an unfeeling monster yeah she looks like a person yeah can recognize the features the wrinkles it's very there's something very relatable about it the indignation Do you want to talk a little bit about Chanel Miller? We do. We want to get to Chanel. We're going to get there. I think we're almost done with our slides. Okay. Oh, this is where it, it talks about how Medusa in art is always face on. Mm -mm -mm. And that a lot of expressions of goddesses and mythological figures, like even if you look to the tarot, you know, like the queen of swords, like the queens are like who is face on and that this really great article talks about like Frontality really conveys a lot of meaning when an artist chooses to like give you that full frontal. Yeah. That full frontal. That full frontal. It's uncompromising. Yeah, this is true. Um, here's a particularly grotesque one by Rubens, um, working shortly 
after Caravaggio. Um, and I mean, we're, we, there's too much, of course, literary sources about Medusa to, to dive into, but you put this slide up there, which just mm -hmm. kind of reminds us like Dante, Shakespeare, Shelley, like it's all been, she's, she's throughout our culture. Yeah. Yeah. And also the way that she's depicted says a lot about the part of the story that you're interested in, you know, this particular version, maybe she's human, but she looks almost supernaturally so, like almost like a vampire who's been killed. So there's a little bit more focus on the monstrous element of her. But um, yeah, Medusa is also a story about the, the danger of beauty you know you can't be too beautiful even if it's not your fault it's still your fault always so so there's that element too i'm thinking about um the statue in new york the quite recent statue that became the symbol for me too you know she's a she's very strong and beautiful but in a different way in a way that we don't often see of women in art you know she's just a she's quite naturally present and athletic there's nothing especially sort of coy about her. So the way that she's used as well, even in silent depictions is really telling for, you know, what part of the story that you're working on inside yourself, what part of the story wants to convey itself to a larger audience through you. So this is um, an example. I think this is a, a crater. So this is pottery, ancient pottery that depicts the whole story. I wanted to put that out there just again to remind us that, you know, Medusa became a mother after her death. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot, and I know there's been a lot of like feminists reclaiming and talking about in particular like that she birthed Pegasus. I, um, Chris Ayer kind of gets forgotten about, which is interesting in and of itself, but this horse Pegasus that even though Medusa was, and I've heard this, I've heard this and read this in different places. Like, so, you know, Medusa became this monster, but she had all of this beauty inside of her, mm. this wild beauty inside of her that because of all of her pain, um, couldn't be released until after she was freed from her head, like her ugliness. And I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier how today we tend to view like this, there's this hard line, like, like that our heads are detached from our bodies. And I think like in detaching her head from her body and then out of her body sprang this beautiful, wild, free beast. Our favorite myth horse. Our favorite myth horse came mm -hmm. from Medusa and that that had always been inside of her. And, you know, it's like sometimes when we, so there's all this reclaiming business about this, which is really great that, you know, she had all this beauty. And if Athena hadn't done that to her, who knows what she could have achieved if she could birth something as beautiful as Pegasus and also this little known hero giant, that there was all of this inside of her, this potentiality, but that her head was getting in her own way. Um, and that her head was something that was done to her 
because of her falling victim. And I mm -hmm. think like, you know, I think like today, like our anxiety, all, we talked about this earlier, but all of these things are like snakes in our hair. And that a lot of times like our, what goes on in our head today, um, it's like it prevents, it's like venomous to us. It present, prevents us from really like showing what is beautiful and true inside of us, like our own Pegasus, but also what's brave uh, inside of us, like the Crusader, Crusader part of the story that I think there's a, there's a takeaway there. Like, are we, like, are we being Perseus to ourself, mm. you know, or are we being Athena to ourself that we're making ourselves monstrous or that, you know, Perseus is, there to cut off our heads and detach ourselves from being able to harm others. Like, I think there's a lot, like if we flip the lens on the story, I know a lot of us feel like Medusa characters, but if we are like, if we take on the roles of the other characters in the story and see, because of course these are archetypal and, and all of the archetypes offer us something that we can learn about ourselves. Yeah, like maybe we're just like two in our heads right and in our bodies yeah and when we just release those ideas you don't even know what's going to fly out and manifest that's a cool idea so one final note and returning to this um amphora that has medusa's two sisters on it so after so perseus goes off and there's this screaming of um your eyelay and it's really really loud and annoying apparently but for whatever reason, um, Athena took that sound and invented the flute so that the flute is actually the wailing of your eyelay in response to Perseus killing Medusa. Wow. How's that for you? I feel like that's just one of those. Well, how's that for you? Yeah. Shit. And then I think about Lizzo playing the flute. <laughs> and I'm like, have we've come full circle, right? That, you know, yeah. so this complicated trajectory. So Medusa has chthonic old parents, you know, that represent something much older than civilization. Medusa wants to be a good girl and fit in. So she goes to the temple to be a priestess. She's trying to be a modern girl in a modern world. It goes badly because she gets victim blamed. She ends up isolated. Nobody likes her anymore. Then a guy comes along and he kills her. Um, and in a way that releases what is beautiful inside of us. But then her sisters, of course, miss her because even though she was, you know, she did, she had these powers, um, they loved her. And then so they chase after the guy who killed her and they scream so loud and it's so annoying that even when Perseus gets all the way back to Athena and Medusa's head becomes part of her aegis, that Athena invents a flute that is the sound of the sisters as they were raging about their murdered sister. Fascinating. That is the story. Meanwhile, the Pegasus and the mighty giant sun are running around. 
Yeah, having adventures. Well, I think uh, Perseus took Pegasus, didn't he? As he yep. is wanting to do. Yeah. But this is also, maybe this is also a good time to mention that there's another reading of the story that makes the claim that, in fact, Athena was not seeking to punish Medusa. Um, she did it so that this kind of thing would never happen to Medusa again. And uh, I totally respect this reading. You know, myths are very mutable and volatile. I will say, though, that one interesting thing about gods is that uh, you can't always clearly understand everything that they're doing all the time because the justice of gods is really different from our kind of justice. Um, and however the story resonates with you or bothers you, like if there's something that sticks out to you and it doesn't have to even come from the canon version of the story, um, if there's something that's like nestled inside you that just won't go away, that you're fighting with or just can't stop thinking about, this is also a representation of how the story is working on you. And that's I a really cool thing. It's so important, right? Like, so wherever yeah. you land, like if you see this, see what Athena did um, as protection, protective rather than punishment. And sometimes protection and punishment go hand in hand. Like they don't need to be yeah. completely orthogonal. Yeah. Um, so Spoken where you're like landing real with this, yeah. pardon me? Spoken like a parent. Spoken like a parent, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm punishing you for your own good. Exactly. Um, you know, if that's where you land it with that story, then that's what the story needs you to understand at this moment. You know, these myths have survived for thousands of years because they are archetypal and, you know, represent like kind of the great questions that we all have and the great experiences we all have in our lives, good and bad. Um, yeah. And, you know, they are, when we enter into like talking about Medusa or Cersei or Medea or any of them, they rise up to meet us. So there is like the ways that they are depicted and understood by um, academicians and portrayed in pop culture and so on. And then there's the way that they personally thrum with us. And we really need to pay attention to that, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and not our issues, you know, where, where we, and where we hold tension, where we're like, it doesn't work for me. Like, you know, that's ridiculous exactly. plot hole or that's stupid. When we have that kind of visceral reaction, that that's really what we should be paying attention to, like, and seek to understand why we're having those reactions. Yeah. And that's part of what myths are designed to do. That's also part of why you can return to a myth and it can be doing different kinds of work on you. It's been said that if a myth is too simple, like if the takeaway or the moral of that myth is too straightforward, it's too neat, it's probably not um, the original story. It's probably a propaganda. So we're going to conclude, we're going to be talking about Chanel Miller um, and the idea we kind of led into this uh, talk with discussing the idea about listening to her, like seeking to understand others. So we're closing with this work of art by Alice Pike Barney, uh, one of the earlier works by a woman depicting Medusa. And, you know, in this image, she is terrified. Um, and she's also very disembodied. And there's so much like, pain in her face yeah and 
you know, to be like, we can imagine that she was looking at Perseus, you know, even though in most versions of the, the story, she's sleeping, or it's that just, you know, that she has so much terror. And I think a lot of us feel that terror. And like, how do we reattach Medusa's head? Like, where do we go from here? So we're going to be diving into um, Chanel Miller's story because we chose that as one kind of case study, not to reduce anybody's experience to that word, but that's a helpful term. Um, and how we can help attach, reattach Medusa's head. So we've worked our way through Medusa's myth and some of our thoughts about what different parts of it could mean. And now we're going to, to, to spend a, the last part of this recording talking about how women today, when they are sexually violated, um, are punished still even in the face of irrefutable evidence. And we discussed several different um, stories about sexual violence that have been heavily reported in recent years and settled on Chanel Miller. First of all, Chanel Miller is so amazing. She's such an inspiration. She is alive and well today making art and really contributing to the planet and it's just such a powerful teacher that there is life after sexual violence yeah life after everything that she went through that you can find the beauty in it and i think with medusa you know a lot of art and so on that depicts her as beautiful today i think that's part of that like reclaiming the feminine in general and finding the beauty like the beauty in what we went through. And I think Chanel Miller is just doing an amazing job with her art and everything and her memoir that we're going to be, uh, that's one of our recommended books for following up this episode. So uh, Angela, do you want to run through kind of like the big picture of what happened to Chanel Miller? Yeah, so it was a few years ago now, wasn't it? Like mm -hmm. at least five, six years ago, uh, she was raped. It was a very high profile rape she was at a Stanford frat party with her sisters and uh, she uh, at some point she she blacks out and uh, she outside I think she's she's raped by this guy this guy who goes to Stanford University a swimmer called Brock and uh, she's found by uh, these two Swedish exchange students who are just biking by and they see the rape in progress and they recognize it for what it is because she's not conscious. Um, so they go and they stop the guy and they, you know, one of them stays with her and takes care of her and the other one chases the guy down. So it's kind of, you know, an ideal situation. And, you know, she's taken to the hospital and she's really well cared for and she's not even conscious of what's happened to her until the next morning, you know, when she wakes in the hospital and they've already done the rape kit, etc. And, uh, and then she's asked later, um, if she wants to press charges. And it seems extremely straightforward. This is something that she also talks about in her in her story about this, know my name, because at the time she was a, 
she was a she was given a fake name I think what was it Emily Doe yeah Emily Doe yeah so we didn't know her name actually until she published her book and uh so it seems like a safe situation you know Stanford was really sorry the medical team the police were all very supportive of her and on her side she had all the evidence she had these guys who um who saw it all happen who rescued her who caught the guy um but uh the trial took a really long time it took I think it, it took a year to take place mm -hmm. it was a very trying time because she couldn't talk about it with anyone and in that time like she was suffering from this trauma you know, and her life was kind of falling apart. And the difficult thing about the trial was in spite of this irrefutable evidence, it seems quite open and shut. Uh, she even expresses surprise about it. It just becomes this long drawn out trial of her character as a person. And it gets down to these really nitty gritty details of the fact that she went pee outside and she doesn't even go to the school and she wore her hair this way. And, you know, the, all of these implications of, you know, how did she invite this situation in fact? Like they even had recordings of her last voicemail to her boyfriend, which is really jumbled because she had been drugged. Um, and they even try to use this against her, like, you know, clearly she was promiscuous and she was not okay. So this is, you know, a thing that she kind of invited. And even the judge um, expressed more concern about the guy and his potential swimming career and, you know, how that could all get thrown away um, than he did over her, like, and what happened to her. And she had, she had written this very beautiful sort of a, like a, like a character testimonial of what happened to her um, that kind of went viral online. And that was part of how we learned the story, but still the judge ruled mostly in favor of him at that time. And then she had to rebuild her life. And this led to her, you know, writing her book a couple of years later and trying to, like you were saying, reclaim her own beauty and her own power and her own voice coming out of that and trying to locate who she was again and you know ultimately making the decision to say her name out loud so people knew who she was and could kind of put a face to this otherwise totally anonymous kind of archetypal person and for me you know like there's so many parts of this her story that we can hopefully learn from like I know like hearing this story about the trial and how her assailant basically got a slap on the wrist um here like we can become outraged and I think we can hold presence for being both really angry and also like what can we learn about how our world works and then how can we like try to make the world better? How can we be, put Medusa's head back on? And, you know, like the thing that sticks to me most about her story, um, besides that now she is really making a beautiful life for herself and others, is that, you know, the, the judge in, like when the trial was finally all said and done, after she had been raked over the coals, like you said, for things like, peeing outside, um, all these things like that are just minutia and had nothing to do with a crime. Um, that after, and then 
her assailant had all of these character witnesses about how wonderful he was and how much potential his future held. And she wasn't permitted to do any of that. It was just all about all these kind of anything negative they could project about her and everything positive that could be projected about him. Mm -hmm. And and then when the judge was weighing, um, you know, what potential punishment that her assailant would have, he said something like, basically, I'm going to paraphrase, basically like, the deed's been done. I don't really doubt that this happened. But my question is, like, does he deserve to be punished for it? And if so, how long? Because he has a really glorious future, so we don't want to ruin his future. And there was no consideration like how this had ruined her future and how much, you know, it was like more victim blaming. You know, it's like, well, yeah, he did this thing. And look at, you know, she did all these things and really actually it's her fault, but we're going to pretend that we're more enlightened here and say, yeah, he is guilty of something. But, you know, he's got this really great future and he's like an elite athlete. So we don't want to ruin his future. We don't want to actually make him pay for the crime. And then one of the things I've heard Chanel Miller say in, in different um, interviews is how, like, I think he went to jail for 90 days, but I think he only did like a month or a couple of weeks in jail. Like a, it's really negligent that a lot of people who are not um, well wealthy white people, particularly white men, when they get convicted of very minor crimes, like, you know, where, um, where weed is illegal, for example, or, you know, stealing a loaf of bread, crimes that really have no victim, that people who are of color or other minorities, that they go for jail for a hell of a lot longer time for crimes that are victimless. And here there is a clear victim who is, you know, physically assaulted and then all the psychological consequences of the rape. Um, and, it, you know, the issue was like, well, you know, we don't want to discomfort the, the assailant. We don't want to cause him any trouble. There's no consideration of what was, you know, like what happened to her and what she was living with. And, you know, in like referencing this back to the Medusa story, you know, it's this idea like Chanel Miller did nothing wrong. And, you know, Stanford University in a way is like a modern temple that is held to such high regard. It's like a temple of Athena, right? Like when you think of it in a modern context um, and that her assailant was this elite swimmer, a, like a Poseidon character. And so you see these, and then you kind of see the way that both like in the courtroom, she was kind of medusa'd, you know, that she was the one with snakes in her hair. She was the one ruining everybody else. She was turning him to stone. It wasn't about what had been done to her at all. Yeah, it was um, about how his life could freeze. Yes, how his life could freeze, right? Like, oh, we won't, don't want his life to freeze. Um, and then how she was treated in like social media before her identity came out, you know, when she was Emily Doe, 
you know, like, and there's still that, like, there's still a lot of women and other people who play Athena in the temple and say, this is your fault. You deserve to be punished. You know, you peed outside. You were the seductress. You were the one, like, the man is innocent and women are the entrappers. And I think that's still, like, per, I think that's still, like, a really toxic thread. Even now when you, we live in the Me Too era when so many women are so brave, women and others who are victims of sexual assault are so brave and speak out, that there is still that thread that that where people will play Athena in the temple and say, you know, this is your fault. You did this. You deserve to be punished. Um, the white guy is above reproach and you tricked him. Bless you. Bless you. Excuse me. <laughs> so, you know, I think a lot of this can be like, wow, that's just a lot. And what are we ever going to do? And I just want to loop back to where we kind of began and talking about. Bless you. <laughs> excuse me. And, and talking about how. As women or others. Bless you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Women or others who who are typically not believed for us to kind of start acting like we deserve to be believed. This is not victim blaming, but I'm just saying like as individuals, we can do this very difficult thing of saying like, no, I deserve to be believed. Mm -hmm. I deserve to take up space and my story deserves to be heard and start to do the work on ourselves. And when someone who is a victim of sexual violence or abuse or other things, when they are speaking, um, really avoid the bandwagon of trashing them. Because I do think social media creates this kind of contagion effect where I think people express their fears um, and, you know, that just world hypothesis, well, there must be something wrong with Chanel Miller, because if there's something wrong with her, and that something isn't wrong with me, then she not only deserved what she got, but then I can help to ensure that it doesn't happen to me. Again, it's very, like, it's faulty thinking, right? I'm not saying that this is a good idea, but that there is, this is how in psychology, this phenomenon is often described. So how do we step away from getting caught up in that um, and work on our own boundaries about what we express and don't express in the public um, and focus on like you know changing even though I keep thinking about just I've heard these like as we've been reading Cassandra's speeds I've been really privileged to hear different stories from different students about all the times when someone does something very offensive, makes jokes about sexual violence against women or, you know, jokes about women calling them whores or sluts or whatever, that all the times that we say nothing. Yeah. Right. That we don't say, you know, that's not funny. That's not okay. And that we don't feel safe enough in those places 
to say these simple things. That's not okay. And I think it might myself, like I had a experience at a party and the conversation veered into this business of like girls deserving it if they dress provocatively. Um, and I just walked away. You know, so I think to say her name, say Medusa's name, say Chanel's name, I think the more times we say their names and let their bravery, you know, Chanel Miller's bravery in going through that trial, it's just unbelievable what she, what they put her through and that she showed up in that courtroom every day for more of it, right? There's so much to be said here about sort of avoiding, and again, this is not about Athena being good or bad either because gods also evolve and you know the, Athena was being used in this particular time in a particular way but I'm talking about avoiding this whole this whole tendency to to play the Athena like the this particular kind of Athena complex um, being an apologist for what happens in very particular ways. Sometimes we do it in really subtle ways, right? Like um, when we're trying to further our career, we all conduct that balance of um, how much of my femininity can I really show? You know, this idea of like leaning in and behaving more like a man and in many ways denying a lot of needs that you have in order to be competitive and to match um, what's expected from men in particular situations. Or uh, I've noticed in my professional life and this was really shocking and scary to me, especially when I began managing teams, how it is true that I can be harder on women and cut men a lot of slack just because, um, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know, like he takes time to learn things or, you know, he made a mistake this time. It's not a big deal. Like not even about big issues like this one, um, but, uh, you know, that just this sustaining this idea of a disproportion, like the the burden of punishment is always so much harder on us. Uh, and one thing you're making me think of is during Me Too, I got really excited about the idea of Me Too and I decided to report somebody who had sexual harassed, sexually harassed me. Um, there were a lot of women at the same company and we'd all been talking and he had done similar things to them and they all hated him, you know? And you know, you know this idea of the whisper network, you always know um, who that guy is. And, uh, and I got really excited and I was like, I think I'm gonna tell my boss about what happened. Um, and they were like, don't do that. <laughs> like, they were like, absolutely don't do that. I know that Me Too seems exciting. Nothing has changed, don't do that. It's right. not going to make a difference. Um, but I was like, I think I should do it. Um, so I did, you know, I called him and I said, uh, you know, you don't have to do anything about this. I just wanna tell you um, something that happened to me. And I told him and he sounded really stressed and he told me that, um, he also doesn't like this guy. This guy's boss doesn't like him. Um, even the men who manage him don't like him. Nobody likes this guy. Everybody is suspected for so long, et cetera. Um, so he was like, okay, I'm gonna you know, take the week and sit with your story or the weekend, excuse me. And over that weekend, those women, those same women who warned me not to tell, they all approached him and they said, uh, please believe her. Here is the story of what happened to me. And uh, so by Monday, he was like, okay, so now I have several things. Um, I do have to report it. So he did. And there was this whole hullabaloo about whether we wanted to be anonymous or not. Uh, and in the end, they kind of, they slapped the guy on the wrist. Um, and, uh, 
you know, that year he won a, like something like a, you know, best ally to women in marketing award um, from some other organization. And, uh, and we all got pushed out um, subtly, but over time, all of us were, were gone. Um, I was the first to go. And, uh, and a few months after this, I talked to one of the women, um, the, like specifically the one who had told me not to say anything. Um, and I asked her why, if she felt that way, obviously she was right. Um, why she said something like why she and, you know, this other woman, you know, stood up and said something as well, if they really didn't believe that, you know, nothing would happen. And her response was, um, because we didn't think you should be alone. Like, we definitely didn't think it would make a difference, <laughs> but we did not think that you should be alone. And, uh, that really meant something to me. And it, it, it's, it's important to say that, you know, Athena are not only women. Um, one of the, the biggest takeaways that I got from that situation was, okay, a lot of women stood together um, to take care of each other, but it would have made a bigger difference if men also had done something and said something, even if they were not harassed themselves. You know, like that's also something that my boss said to me later that he was really sorry that he was not a lot more explicit about his support of us and how, you know, this guy had a lot of issues um, because, you know, he's still there and he's still, you know, fine. And he probably thinks that, you know, there's nothing wrong with him because he's validated by other men who are ostensibly good guys and um, who I think generally are, but they, they often don't see this as their problem or they all also want to keep their jobs and they don't know to what degree they'll be punished. Um, but it does merit saying that when men also stand beside you, they do get punished less. And it does make a big difference as well. So, you know, like women standing together and also like men standing together to support them, even if they're not the ones who, you know, who've been harassed in the situation, it does make a big difference. A good example is Nike. You know, there were years of horrible um, harassment stories, but when the men actually started to quit, because they were not okay with what was happening to the women. That was when Nike finally changed its policies. All right, it's so much. And I think what you're saying is that when we see someone going through this, like to let them know that they're not alone. Yeah, yeah, and to help them. You know? And to help them if you can, like however you can. Um, if you have experienced sexual violence or trauma or workplace harassment or any of these other things, um, you're not alone. And I hope that watching this has been interesting to you and some of the ideas that we've talked about perhaps have been helpful. You're not alone, reach out for help if you're isolated, uh, talk to someone. There are lots of resources out there. We're not going to list specific ones because they vary by what country you're in. Um, find someone to talk to and when you hear someone sharing this story just let them know that they're not alone and you deserve to be believed when you speak out you know like if you are speaking truth you deserve the basic human right of having people listen to you and take you seriously and take you seriously um you know like we are like cassandra 
who wasn't believed, right, in the mythology. I mean, we decided to focus on Medusa this month instead of Cassandra, but, you know, Cassandra, like all these women, I mean, you were a Cassandra, right? Like you were believed, but not really. Um, you're a troublemaker <laughs> and all your firebrand, you're a whistleblower, you're all these things. And, you know, I, I think for me, what I want people to take away from all of this is that when you experience something like this, sexual violence, abuse, so on, that it does have real impacts on you, like that don't diminish it. Um, you know, if nothing else, know that Angela and I validate you if you've got nobody else in your life, you know, that that experience was real and impactful for you. And I think we have to keep retelling our personal stories and also exploring these myths, which are so helpful as a framework for us understanding our own painful stories. So thanks to all of you for watching and um, May Medusa, may we all work to put Medusa's head back on and may Cassandra be believed. Thanks for watching. Thanks everyone.